Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're back in Matthew. Um, And so if you don't have a Bible, there's a black hardcover pew Bible under the chair in front of you. And if you turn to page 858, you'll find Matthew chapter 5 on page 858. We're going to look at verses. The plan was to go verses 1 through 10. But um, in my sermon preparation, I have a certain page count that I can't exceed, and I reached that page count halfway through the sermon. So we're going to go one through six, and um, hopefully it will still make sense. I'm sure the explanation will make sense, but I'm sure God will be gracious because the power is not in me anyways, right? It's in the Word and His Spirit. So let me read to you Matthew 5, one through six, and then we will pray and think on it. When Jesus, that's he there, when he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. We'll go to verse 10 in our reading. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Our Father, with our Bibles open before us, we ask now that you would Open our eyes to see wonderful things here in your word. Our life is down in the dust. We are poor and bankrupt. We are needy. Give us life through your word. Teach us your statutes, for you have often answered our prayers. Help us understand the meaning of your precepts so that we can meditate on your wonders, on your glory, on your beauty, and on your majesty. Lord, some of us here, many of us here are weary from grief. Strengthen us through your word. Keep us from the way of deceit and graciously give us your instruction. We have chosen, the Christians here, we have chosen the way of truth. We have set your ordinances before us. And so we cling to your decrees. Lord, do not put us to shame. We pursue the way of your commands for you broaden our understanding and enlarge our hearts. So help us to pursue that now, because apart from you, I can't preach in any way that would be meaningful or effective, and we can't hear and believe and repent and draw near without you coming and helping. So help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to leave verses 1 and 2 for a future sermon when we get to verse 17, probably. But the point here is that Jesus went up a mountain to begin to pray, or not to pray, to to speak to his disciples. Earlier, there were large crowds in chapter four that were following him. He just called Matthew, and um, or he called the the fishermen to follow him, and then he was teaching, preaching everywhere. So now he gets large crowds following him, and so he takes this huge crowd, and he addresses them. And we are going to be in this address, this Sermon on the Mount, for at least, I don't know, eight, 10, maybe 12 weeks, thinking carefully through what this sermon is about. And so we start here with verses 3 through 6. 
in Harvard, at Harvard, Harvard University, there's a professor there named Dr. Ben Shahar. Have you heard of Dr. Ben Shahar? Sungmin? Sungmin's a student there. He has the most popular class there. Um, it started with six students, and in, in the last few years, it's ballooned to having over 1,400 students come through his class. And the class was, is called How to Be Happy. How to Be Happy. It started with six students, and it just gained popularity, and, and he basically struck a nerve with the university because everyone wants to know how to be happy. You know, I'll take a college course on how to be happy if it's really going to teach me how to be happy. Who doesn't want happiness? That literally drives our lives. And so here, Jesus gives us an answer, not exactly how to be happy, though it, it does tie. There, there are applications on how to be happy. But Jesus is actually asking a deeper question. Who is happy? Who is the blessed one? Who are the people who are blessed? Because happiness and blessedness, the experience of happiness, is not so much what you do, but who you are. The character of who you are flows into what you do. And Jesus is going beneath how to be happy, and he asks and answers the question, who is happy? What does it mean to be happy? What does it mean to be blessed? Now, you're saying, PJ, you're looking at the text, and you're saying, PJ, it doesn't say happy. It says blessed or blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not happy. Why are you saying happy? Because happy is another way of translating the word blessed. To, to be blessed is to be favored by God. It's to, be, it's to have God's favor on you. It's to have God relating to you where he's your joy. And if God is your joy, then you are happy. The Old Testament translates, even in the CSB, the Old, Old Testament translates the Hebrew word that the Greek word here is used as happy several times. Let me read to you some Old Testament passages. Do you guys know what these, these uh, eight verses are called? The blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. The what? Beatitudes. Do you know that there are Old Testament Beatitudes as well? Have you heard any Old Testament Beatitudes? I sent an email to our church with about 30 of them or 15 of them. I'm not reading all of them. I'm going to read some of them here. Let me read to you some Old Testament Beatitudes because Jesus here talking about happiness, happy is the one who, he's just picking up an Old Testament tradition here. So listen to this. Here's the first one and maybe the one that sets the whole Bible in terms of the Beatitudes. Deuteronomy 33, 29. How happy you are, Israel. How happy you are. Who is like you, a people saved by Yahweh. He is a shield that protects you, the sword you boast in. Your enemies will cringe before you, and you will tread on their backs. So who is the happy one? The one that's saved by who? Yahweh. The one where Yahweh fights your enemies, that's the happy one. Israel. And then you're, maybe the most famous one in the Old Testament. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway of sinners or sit in, a com in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the, in, in the Lord's instruction or in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates what? Day and night. So who's the happy one? His mind is not captured by the way people think. There are mockers out there. There are boastful people out there. There are um, sinners and wicked people who reject God's word. And the happy person, his mind and thoughts and opinions are not shaped by those. He meditates on God's word day and night, and he discerns how to think about the world's ideas from God's word being his center and authority. So the happy person is saved. The happy person, he's saved by Yahweh. He meditates on scripture. 
the happy person is also justified. Listen to Psalm 32 too. How happy is a person, actually the translation here is, how joyful is a person, same word though, how joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and in whose spirit is no deceit. Is that person happy when God doesn't charge you with sin? If God doesn't charge you with any sin and he forgives you of all your sin, shouldn't you be happy? Yes, right? The, before the judge of the world who knows all of your sin, how, this is David who has some great sins in his life. For him to say how happy is the one where God does not charge me with my iniquity and how happy is the one in whom there's no deceit. Now you're thinking, wait, David, you deceive people. What do you mean in whose no deceit? Well, God transformed him to be one who's honest. Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the one who takes refuge in him. Psalm 65, 4, how happy is the one you choose to bring near to live in your courts. Notice how happy is the one you choose. Who are the happy ones? The chosen ones. If I wanted to get in trouble, I might say the word elect. But that's just, that's another word for chosen, isn't it? How happy are the chosen, how happy is the one you choose, you elect, and bring near to live in your courts. Psalm 144.15, happy are the people with such blessings. Happy are the people whose God is Yahweh. Is that right? I mean, if, you're, if God is Yahweh, if your God is Yahweh, and you are his people, shouldn't you be happy? Yes. Aren't you blessed, whether you feel it or not? Yes. And last one, Psalm 146.5, happy is the one whose God, whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in Yahweh, his God. So the happy one in the Old Testament is saved. The happy one meditates on scripture, he's justified, he's forgiven of all of his sin, he's no longer someone who deceives, though he deceived in the past. He trusts in God, he's chosen by God, he's part of God's people, and God is his God. And Jesus picks up right along that tradition and says, how happy is the one, how happy is the one who's poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. How happy is the one who mourns, for they will be comforted. How happy are those who are humble, for it is they who will inherit the earth. How happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for it is they who will be satisfied. Now, our problem is we don't always feel happy, right? Our problem is that we, we live with this thing called the curse. If blessedness is joy, the curse brings pain. So if we're cursed... And even if we're not cursed, if we're forgiven by God, don't we still live with the effects of the curse around us? We do. Our bodies are decaying. Our souls still sin. We're around sinners every day. There is sin in our society and in our world. We live with the curse everywhere. And so even though we might be blessed, even though we might be forgiven, even though we might be chosen, bumping up against the brokenness inside this, in the world out there, in this building in here, and then if we go even deeper, in our own hearts, with our own brokenness and sin, sometimes if we're just honest, we're just not happy. We don't feel blessed. So that's part of our problem is we don't feel happy. And the second problem is we're confused as to who is truly happy. Who, is, who are the truly blessed ones? Who's, who's really a Christian? We're confused about happiness for a second reason. I mean, from here. I mean, Jesus said, happy are those who mourn. Okay, time out. Happy are those who mourn. If you're mourning, then aren't you by definition not happy? So Jesus is working on a different level here in some ways of what he means by happiness. Now, don't take it away from emotion. It doesn't mean it's emotionless, but it's, it's beyond mere emotions. 
So our problem is we are confused about what happy is. And then if this really is, and I'm telling you this is, I'm just going to say it, this is the profile of a true Christian. This is a profile of someone who, who, owns the, who possesses the kingdom of God. These eight beatitudes, these eight characteristics are characteristics of those who are truly saved. And we know, when you get to the end of Matthew 7, not everyone who says, Lord, 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 is truly saved. So this is a, these are characteristics of the truly saved. So then we feel inside, well, you read, some of these things, you read some of these things and you start to ask yourself, wait, if this is the characteristic of those who are truly saved, am I really saved? We don't want to ask that question too much because it scares us, right? We start doubting our salvation and we wonder, am I really saved? Well, Jesus is giving us help. It might not feel like help at first, but it will be help in the end. He helps us know who is really saved, who is really blessed. What is it about them that characterizes them so we can know and identify who is truly blessed? So uh, really, the main goal of these next two sermons, not the main goal of this sermon by itself, but the main goal of these next two sermons is recognize who is truly blessed, recognize who is truly happy so that you seek first God's kingdom and righteousness with blessed enthusiasm. That's not the main goal of this sermon. That's the main goal of, of, the next, of these two. The main goal of this sermon, since I had to cut it in half, is this. Well, hold on, before I say that, let me just say one more thing about the eight Beatitudes here. These are eight marks of a truly happy person. But I summarize them into two categories. Two categories, which are going to be the two sermons. Who is the happy person? Not just these eight things. Let me just break it down. It's those who desire surpassing righteousness. That's today. And those who do public righteousness, okay? That's what I think is at the heart of these Beatitudes. Those who desire surpassing righteousness, if you desire surpassing righteousness, you're, you're one of the blessed ones. Those who desire surpassing righteousness, and then next week, those who do public righteousness. The issue here is righteousness. Verse 6 and verse 10, it's about righteousness, Okay? So the main goal for this morning is recognize that those who desire surpassing righteousness are blessed. You need to recognize that those who desire surpassing righteousness are blessed so that you desire this righteousness, okay? So check your heart here. Do these four do these four characteristics um, characterize you? Do, are you someone who desires surpassing righteousness? There's four reasons why this person is blessed. So let's look at these four reasons why the person who desires surpassing righteousness is blessed. First of all, go to verse 3. The one who desires surpassing righteousness is blessed. He's called here poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Why? For what? For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. All right, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, and I'm going to argue at the end that this is tied to desiring righteousness. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, let me give you some alternatives that lie about this. Here's an irreligious lie. Blessed are the beautiful and fully acceptable and wonderful just as they are. Just accept yourself. You have no needs or deficiencies. To do so would be poor self-esteem. Blessed are those who accept themselves for who they are without any question, for they are the ones who are truly loved. You hear that around in the world today? That's a lie. 
or doesn't agree with Jesus. Here's a, here's a religious way of lying about it. Blessed are those who are spiritually resourceful, for they use what they have to make their lives count, and they don't need to lean on or be a burden to their other church members. That too close to home? Blessed are those who are so spiritually resourceful, for they have what they have to make use of their lives and never need to rely or burden their fellow church members or other Christians. That's not what Jesus says. Blessed are the what? What's that word? Blessed are the what? Poor, bankrupt, broke. And when you're broke, you can't help yourself. You need outside help at that point. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means to be broke, destitute, bankrupt. I'm not talking about being poor for a day where you can make it through a day you know, without food for a day. I'm talking about being completely bankrupt. Spiritually, poor in spirit. Now, Luke's going to take it and talk about materially poor, but that's not our message today. You can look at that in Luke if you want to see his version of this. But here, the point is, are you spiritually poor? Do you realize your spiritual poverty? And are you so desperate that it's obvious to others that you need help? Let me give you Jesus' words from Revelation 3. Some of you guys know I've been in Revelation a lot lately. Jesus said this about the lukewarm church that he was going to spit out of his mouth. For, for you say, you lukewarm people, for you say, I'm rich, I have become wealthy, and I need nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. That's what you are. But you don't realize that. You think you're rich. You don't need anything, right? You're rich in spirit. You're a member of the church. You know the Bible. You've been a Christian for a long time. You're a pastor who preaches, right? Jesus says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich. White clothes to dress yourself so that, you may, so that your shameful nakedness not be exposed. An ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see because you're blind, you're naked, and you're broke. You don't realize it. That's why you're lukewarm. And so blessed are the poor in spirit is, is this reality of spiritual bankruptcy. We are condemned completely for our sins. Even one sin condemns us. Even your life this week should damn you to hell. Even your life today should damn you to hell. This is not poverty, like I said, where you could just make it day by day. This is a poverty where you not only need food, clothing, and shelter because you're straight up naked and broke and starving and homeless, but you're also on a respirator on the bed. You're on life support. And you're saying, look at me, I'm so strong. That's The non-Christian says, look at me, I'm so strong. I mean, who on life support on a bed, broken, bankrupt, naked, and blind, and on a respirator on life support is going to boast about their strength? That's, what, that's a picture of every Christian, and true Christians realize that that's them. We're destitute, and so our situation is desperate. So Jesus says, blessed are those who realize that they're poor in spirit. And you know what? Just... To confess personally, I don't always feel my need for others' help. I don't feel my need often for God's help. I just keep going on, quick prayer here, quick prayer there. I've been a pastor for a while. I could kind of run off of experience and personal knowledge, not stop to pray, not ask for help from other people, not my church family, not others. I'm guilty of 
being, thinking I'm rich and in need of nothing, self-sufficient. But here's another picture of it. And this story I'm going to use for the whole sermon. This, I'm going to go to this story three times, maybe four times. Okay, so I'm going to go to Luke 18. You don't have to turn there, but Luke 18, 9 through 14. I'll read it to you. Jesus tells this parable about, he tells this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they looked down on everybody else. Okay, this is the opposite of these four Beatitudes. So he's going to tell this parable. He says, two men went to the temple to pray. You guys, some of you know this. Two men went to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing out and he would hold his hands up to heaven and he said, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. You could say this human trafficker. Not like him. Drug dealer. Not like him. I give a tenth of everything I get. I fast twice a week. Thank you, God. On the other side is this tax collector. And standing afar off, he would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but he kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He couldn't even look up. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Who's poor in spirit? Tax collector or the Pharisee? Who's poor in spirit? Who's aware of their poverty of spirit? The tax collector's aware. They're both poor in spirit in a sense, but yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the Pharisee is poor in spirit. He just doesn't realize it. Yeah. The tax collector is, but when Jesus is talking about poor in spirit, he's talking about those who realize it, right? Blessed are those who realize their poverty and just ask God for mercy. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What do you mean theirs is the kingdom of heaven? Let's continue with this verse. What does it mean that, these, that theirs is the kingdom of heaven? For the, so in popular opinion back then, well, let me talk about popular opinion now and then back then. Popular opinion in, our, in the church is what's the kingdom of heaven? Some people might say it's the church. Some people might say the kingdom of heaven is Christians or others might say it's heaven, right? The kingdom of heaven is heaven and it's in the future. That's how, what a lot of Christians think. It's not what Jesus means by it. It's not just future heaven. Um, but in popular opinion, today, what's the perfect world like for your non-Christian friends? Popular opinion and culture, it's their utopia or their ideal. That's the kingdom. Maybe no pollution. Everyone going green. No corruption in politics. That would be nice. No oppression between peoples and people groups. No false doctrine, false teaching and lies and fake news. No, some people might say no diversity. Others might say no uniformity, depending on your view. No rules, do whatever you want. That's the kingdom of heaven. And it comes to those who get it. That's not what Jesus is talking about either. Back then, for the Jew, what was the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom was the Roman yoke. So it was breaking the Roman yoke, the Roman, uh, the Roman oppression and the Roman rulership over Israel to, to, to shatter the Roman rule and bring political peace, mounting prosperity, and the supremacy of Israel so that all the nations would come to Israel for the blessing. That's what they thought the kingdom was. So Jesus is saying, blessed are those who get the kingdom. They're thinking, yeah, when God says he promised in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel that there's going to be this great kingdom, yeah, that's the kingdom we want, okay? And there's something to that. There's something to that. But when we see kingdom of heaven, and it's important here, it's in verse 3, and it's also in verse 10. We're talking about heaven as opposed to earth. 
It's not earthly, it's heavenly. It's not decaying physical, it's spiritual first, and it's also going to be eventually physical. The kingdom of heaven is where God is. The kingdom of earth is where man is. The kingdom of heaven is eternal and eternally minded. The kingdom of earth is temporally minded. The kingdom of heaven is preoccupied with the holy ethnic people group, the holy nation. The, the earthly kingdom is uh, preoccupied with the temporal earthly ethnic people groups and the, ter- the, the temporary earthly nation. And Jesus is not talking about that. He's talking about being in the, entering the kingdom of heaven, possessing the kingdom of heaven, our citizenship in heaven. So what is the kingdom of heaven? Here's my summary. The kingdom of heaven is the sinner-saving, curse-reversing rule of God. That's my short way of saying it. It's the sinner-saving, curse-reversing rule of God. Now, they would have thought, they would have thought of sinner-saving. They would have just thought about curse-reversing. Everyone there listening to Jesus, I want to be in the kingdom. I want to be in this curse-reversing rule of God because what was promised in the prophets? A new temple, Remember that? A new temple, a new heart, a new covenant, a new David, a new Jerusalem, a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth, and a new exodus that was going to bring us into this new kingdom, right? That's what they were wanting. They, wanted, they weren't wanting to be anti-biblical. We want Isaiah's prophecies to be fulfilled. We want Ezekiel's prophecies to be fulfilled. We want God's promise to Abraham that all the nations of the earth will be, will be blessed through, through Abraham's seed. We want that to be fulfilled. So that's what they wanted, the curse-reversing rule of God. And that's what we want as well. We want, but we add the sinner-saving curse-reversing rule because what Jesus is saying here is that, is that you're a sinner and, and until you realize you're poor in spirit and you need saving, that you're not going to get to the kingdom, right? If you're not a sinner who gets saved, those saved sinners will enter the kingdom. But if you don't get the sinner-saving rule, then you're not going to enjoy the curse-reversing rule, Right? And so that's what Jesus is after here. Um, He's saying, that's yours. So Christian here, this is yours, the sinner-saving, curse-reversing rule of God. It's It's in the future, but it's also here presently in our lives, in part. So what's the application here from this first beatitude? Church family, lean on God together and lean on each other. Look to God in prayer. Look to God for strength, not yourself. Don't we have a God who's generous? and answers our prayers? Doesn't he fill our needs? Doesn't he make us rich when we're poor? He does. Here's here's an easy application for you, brothers and sisters. When when, When you share a prayer request with someone, extend yourself to share a prayer request that's a little bit uncomfortable for you. Show, if you're if you're saying, you know, PJ, I'm not like you. I can't just share my needs. I can't just be confessing my sins publicly behind the pulpit. That's just not me. That's not my personality. Okay, fine. It's not your personality. But you can share a prayer request where you expose yourself a little bit, be a little bit vulnerable, and then I want you to taste and see that God is good. That you'll think you're going to be embarrassed when you share that, and you're going to realize the exact opposite. You're going to taste that God is going to come right around you in your poverty and supply you richly. And you're going to be like, why don't I do this more often? Why don't I share more of my burden? Why don't I confess more of my sin and my need? Okay, so if if that's hard for you and that sounds crazy, start with a small prayer request. Uh, pray for me, I'm not reading my Bible two times a day. I'm only reading it once, you know, something like that. Something safe-ish. I don't know. All right, so, so, so do that. And then if you're not a Christian, uh, if you're not a Christian or you're a Christian who's struggling with this, do you realize that you're spiritually bankrupt apart from Jesus? You know, non-Christians in, in, in the world today, it's, it's popular to be spiritual but not religious. I'm spiritual, so I'm good. I'm a person of faith. Well, you're still bankrupt without Jesus. Okay, that's, that's the first one, okay? So recognize who the truly happy person is. 
The second, second thing here about um, recognizing the person who truly desires surpassing righteousness is verse four. So point number two is verse four. Um, be, um, those who mourn will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for it is they who will be comforted. Here's the alternative. Here's a religious, an irreligious lie. Blessed are those who accept who they are, including their failures, so they're admitting failures. Blessed are those who accept who they are, including their failures, and who accept the things they feel guilty about, for they have peace within, as long as they accept who they are. Another irreligious lie is, blessed are those who are happy, for they are happy. You're thinking, what? That doesn't even make sense. Well, there's songs that say this. Let me quote one to you. Clap along if you know what happiness is to you. Here comes bad news talking this and that. Okay, what do you do when you have bad news? Yeah, well, give me all you got and don't hold back. Yeah, well, I should probably warn you. I'll, just, I'll be just fine. Yeah, no offense to you. Don't waste your time. Because I'm happy. Bring me down. Can't nothing bring me down. My level's too high. I'm happy because I'm happy. Blessed are those who are happy because they're happy. That's what the world might tell you. Jesus doesn't go there. He's not that, it's not that simple. And what about the religious lie? Here's the religious lie. Blessed are those who do religious things to make up and outweigh their sin and weaknesses, for they will never be sad, and they'll find comfort in their efforts. That's not what Jesus says either. What does he say? Blessed are those who what? Mourn. Blessed are those who grieve regularly for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who grieve regularly, daily. What do they mourn over? Is there, are there broken things in this world to mourn over? In our, in our country, in our world, in our churches, in our convention of churches, in our church here, in our families, in our lives, are there things that we can mourn over? Those who mourn regularly are comforted regularly. Those who grieve are comforted. If you cut off the grief, you cut off the what? The comfort. If you short-circuit the mourning over your sin, you short-circuit the comfort you receive in the forgiveness for your sin. And so we lament and mourn. Why do, we do, a, why do I make sure that we do a prayer of confession every, every Sunday? Is it because we just like to whip ourselves in the back? No, it's because blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. When people mourn over their sin, then they find the comfort of God's grace. And when you don't mourn, you don't find the comfort of God's grace. You find your own self-congratulating, self-efforts, and you don't stand up too strong in that regard. This is, this is a call to lament. This is a call to mourn. Here, uh, you see this in the Bible. They often um, turn lament into prayers. Look at the Psalms. Aren't they a lot of, isn't there a lot of mourning in the Psalms? There is much to grieve about in our homes, in our churches, in our cities, in our nation, in our world. We need to grieve because if you don't grieve, you don't get God's heart and you don't get God's perspective. If you don't grieve over the brokenness in this world and over the pain in this world and over the sin and the effects of sin in this world, if you don't grieve, you only get a partial picture of what's going on. If you only think of the blessings, right? 
And when you make the partial picture the whole picture, do you have an accurate picture? No. You have a distorted picture. You have a mistaken picture. And then when you try to minister to other people with your half picture, acting like it's the full picture, and you don't know how to grieve and weep with those who weep, you will crush people in your arrogance and in your lack of sympathy because you never mourn. And so we need to mourn. And mourning begins, it always has to begin here. Okay, I did say mourning about brokenness and sins in the world, but it always has to begin here with mourning over what first? Your own what? Your own sin first. If you mourn over your own sin second or third or fifth, you're gonna lose it. You're gonna become self-righteous because their sin's gonna become bigger than yours and their problem is gonna be a bigger problem than yours and you won't minister well. You won't, you won't receive the blessing and enjoy the blessing and pass on the blessing if you don't learn how to mourn for your sins first and foremost. So remember the tax collector and the Pharisee? Who was mourning out of the two? The tax collector. He couldn't even look up to heaven, right? He's beating his chest. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's mourning over his own sin. This other man, the Pharisee, is, he's praying to God too, same God, biblically sound, but no mourning, and therefore no comfort. This guy got comfort, right? You get divine and supernatural comfort, especially when Christ returns. Do we get full comfort now? Does all, do all of our tears get wiped away now, yes or no? No, they don't. They don't. But will it be wiped away in the end? Every single one of them? Absolutely. Revelation 7, 17 says this, For the Lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them, he will guide them to springs of living waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. What would it feel like? What will it feel like when the hand of God is wiping your face? What a blessing. Truly, those, if God will wipe away your tears, you're blessed, right? And do you experience any of that comfort now? Partially, at least? We do, right? In part. It's not full, but we, we experience in part. Listen to 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is firm because we know that as you share in the suffering, so you will also share in comfort. So we are not... We are not idealistic. We're not ignoring suffering in this world. We're realistic. We're not pessimistic, but we're not blindly optimistic either. We are realistic. There is pain. There are tears. We do read Ecclesiastes, right? We did. Um, there is pain, but there is blessing. There is comfort. There is joy here in part and in the end finally. So let me apply this to you before we move on. Brothers and sisters, don't be scared of reality. This is just practical, but we have to say this in our culture today, don't we? And in our churches. Don't be scared of reality. Face reality with confidence in the God who sustains reality. And also, let me say this. Think biblically unhappy thoughts. Let me say that again. You need to think biblically true unhappy thoughts 
for your ultimate happiness, okay? If you don't, if you ignore all the biblically unhappy thoughts, you'll never get to true deep happiness. You can get shallow happiness. You could sing songs like, you know, the, the song I just quoted. You get that shallow happiness. But if you want deep happiness, you need to think biblically true, yet unha- temporarily or initially unhappy thoughts. You got to face reality. Because if you don't, you can't get deep happiness and comfort. God ignoring thoughts kill happiness. Unhappy thoughts don't kill happiness. God ignoring thoughts kill happiness. Sin ignoring thoughts kill happiness. Curse ignoring thoughts kill happiness. Brokenness ignoring thoughts kill happiness. Grief ignoring thoughts kill happiness. Grace ignoring thoughts kill happiness. Pain ignoring thoughts make happiness shallow. Think about the prayers we pray. Here's another application, and I was just doing it in application. I don't do this. I confess I don't do this regularly, but as John uh, was leading us in prayers. I'm like, Lord, I want to mourn. I don't, th- out of all of these, this is my weakest out of these four. This is my weakest. Um, and, and they're all weak, but that one's the weakest for me, at least right now. Um, I don't mourn over my sin the way I should. And so even as John's there pr- leading us in prayer, I'm thinking, I'm trying to listen to his prayers and I'm trying to grab onto him. And I missed the first one. I couldn't remember it. But the second one was about us putting our eternal, our mindsets on treasures on earth rather than heaven. And we could confess that pretty easily, right? Can we all say amen to that, right? But can we mourn over it for a little bit more? Like, I mean, not that the prayer has to be longer, but can you just kind of take it and just, you know, like, like a lifesaver, just put it in your mouth and suck on it for a little bit? You know, like just, Lord, I don't think about heaven as I should. And it grieves me. This is not okay. It's not okay that I treasure things on earth more than things in heaven. It's not, Lord. Help me to mourn. Or the other, I think the second one John said was about neglecting our Bibles. That's an easy one to confess, and I confess that, but, can, can, but we need to mourn. We need to, to linger. Confess, have prayers of confession every day in your life, brother, sister. Confess your sins daily. Mourn daily over your sin, and then find the comfort of God. Spend at least five minutes today. Here's the easy one. Spend five minutes today just thinking about your sin specifically, and how it grieves God's heart and grieves and hurts others, and then mourn over it, and then go to the cross and feel grace and comfort. All right, that's, that's secondly. Third, so um, the, 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 one who, the one who desires surpassing righteousness, he is poor in spirit, and he mourns regularly. Thirdly, the third one, verse five, blessed are the what? Humble, some translations say gentle. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Here's some alternatives that you hear out in the world and in the church. Instead of blessed are the humble, it's blessed are the go-getters and the aggressively ambitious, for they will gain the whole world and fulfill all their dreams. Or here's another one from the world. Blessed are those who don't take any disrespect from anyone, for they will never be stepped on or pushed over. They will never be taken advantage of. Here's a religious lie that you find in the church. Blessed are those who fight for personal justice and vengeance, get personal revenge, for they reflect religious truth and fairness. So I will get personal vengeance because it reflects justice and fairness. That's not what Jesus says here. He says, blessed are those who are, blessed are the humble, 
for they will inherit the earth. What does it mean to be humble? It means to be another, King James would be meek. Another translation would say gentle. It's the thoughtful submission to the will and timing of God, even in painful circumstances. Okay? It's the, and the key word for humble here is submission. It's the thoughtful, you could even say trusting submission to the will and timing of God, even in painful circumstances. So if you're in an argument with your friend or your spouse or your roommate or your child and you are tempted to be proud, question in that moment when you're tempted to be proud. Are you at that moment trusting and submitting to the will of God even in the painful circumstance? If you are, you won't be arrogant. Gentleness or humility, gentleness is power under control. Exercise for the good of others and not for the immediate defense of oneself. You got to be able to take the hits while you're trying to serve someone. They're hitting you and you're still trying to serve them. Even as they're pushing you away and they're attacking you, you're taking the hits and you're still trying to do them good. That's humility. Okay? So um, it's power under control. You don't get off track. The gentle, the humble, the Meek, they entrust themselves to God's control, to God's timing, to God's purposes, to God's justice, to God's vengeance, to God's temporal and final judgment. And was the tax collector humble? Yes or no? Jesus said at the very end, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So there it is, humility. This guy humbled himself, so he's exalted. And what do you get when you're humble? What will we get in the end? They will inherit the what? Kingdom of God, verse 5, they will inherit the what? The earth, yes, the earth, they'll inherit the earth. What does that mean to inherit the earth? Now, brothers and sisters, look up here for a second, just get off the Bible, go back to Old Testament mindset just for a second. If you're with Moses and you're traveling through the wilderness and you're talking about inheriting the earth, what are you thinking about? Or you're inheriting the land, what are you thinking of? The promised land, right? That's the land you're going to inherit, and then if you read, I'm in my devotions in Chronicles. Do you ever get into those passages where it talks about the allotment of the land? It says from here to here, and you're like, I don't even know what tribes and what, do they, what land do they get, and who cares? Who cares about all this Bible reading? It's the inheritance of the land. You'd care if that was your land, right? If your family name was there, wouldn't you care? If that was your land, you'd care about that inheritance, right? You don't care about when you're reading the Bible, but when an ancestor dies and they leave a lot of money and your name is somewhere there, are you going to read that will carefully? Are you going to do your devotions very carefully? exegesis, you'll take some exegesis classes and interpretation classes to make sure you get it exactly right? You will then, right? Because you care about it because it's your inheritance. Well, the land that they inherited was an echo of what's the original land where they lived with God? The Garden of Eden. That was lost. The land is the land flowing with what? Milk and honey. And the earth here that Jesus is telling us today and telling his hearers here is not just the land of Israel. It's the whole earth becomes the Garden of Eden. The whole earth becomes the promised land. And guess what? If you um, are humble, you inherit the what? The new earth. You inherit, you inherit the new earth. You're one of the promised people of God receiving the promised land of God, which is the whole earth. Read Revelation 21 and 22 if you want to know what the new earth is. That's your inheritance. Well, if you're humble, if you're one of those who desire surpassing righteousness shown in your humility, then the new earth is yours. You are an heir. Aren't you blessed? Are you blessed if that's your, if that's your inheritance? Right? Um, so that's what we inherit. 
And we inherit that because like this tax collector who was humbled and justified, because he's declared righteous in Christ, he inherits the new earth. And just like you humble yourself and you find your acceptance before God in Christ, you too will inherit the earth. You get it. So um, non-Christian, if you're not a Christian here this morning, um, you might be lacking humility. Actually, if you're, biblically, you are lacking humility. Humility here means humbling yourself before God in your sin and asking God to save you. If you haven't done that yet, you're not a Christian. And so I want to encourage you um, to do that, to humble yourself before God. Because those who exalt themselves and won't humble themselves now, they will be humbled in the end, in the judgment, the final judgment in hell forever. But those who humble themselves now, they receive, they inherit the earth. They inherit the new earth forever. And we want you to inherit it too. We're not greedy. We got lots of space. We could share our inheritance here. This is not an inheritance we're trying to keep people out. We want as many people. Don't we, don't we, Bethany Baptist Church? We want as many people as will hear and believe. We want everyone to inherit this earth. There's space for everybody. God's riches are infinite. And we want everyone to receive this. So if you're not a Christian, we would love for you to humble yourself and inherit this earth with us. Christian, are you struggling with humility? Here's what Michael Reeves tweeted a few uh, a long time ago. He wrote this. If you want to be anxious today, simply pretend you're in control. <laughs> you want to be anxious today? Just pretend you're in control. <laughs> Just be proud. Don't humble yourself and trust God's control. Just pretend you're in control and you'll be anxious today. You'll have things to be, ang- you'll have anxiety, right? So just humble yourself. Let, let go of your control and trust God because really, doesn't he control it anyways? I mean, do you really control anything that you think that you want to control? No, not really. Just, just enjoy that. It's freeing. Church family amongst each other and all of our relationships, we're gonna fight with each other at times, right? We're gonna step on each other's toes. We're gonna sin against each other. We're gonna hurt each other. The deeper our friendships go, the deeper the pain. And it's gonna happen in the church. It has happened in the church. It's going to continue. But let me tell you two things here. Number one, our conflict will always be, our sinful conflict, our painful, painful conflict will always be due to at least one of the two parties, oftentimes both parties, not being humble. It'll always be due to one of the two parties not being humble. So church family, realize that as you look at each other and you deal with things with each other, you gotta ask the humility question. Secondly, there will be no reconciliation and harmony until there's humility on both sides. Blessed are the humble for they will inherit the earth. So be humble. And brothers and sisters, don't, don't mistake humble humility with passivity. Passivity is sometimes pride. Sometimes you're passive because you don't want the, the discomfort of dealing with the conflict. That's not humility. That's pride. All right? So humble assertiveness is what God's calling us to. And lastly here, let's go here last. So, oh wait, one more thing. Let me just, these three, let me, let me summarize. Let me give you a good Spurgeon quote. This is a juicy one, but I wanted to save these three. So if you're poor in spirit, and if you mourn regularly for your sin, and if you are humble, then um, when you get criticized, how should you respond? Do you ever get criticized? No one criticizes you, right? Am I the only one who gets criticized? Um, when you're criticized... How should you respond? Here's what Charles Spurgeon says. You have to know that you have to own these three beatitudes before you get to this quote and enjoy it, but this is it. Charles Spurgeon says, quote, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. 
<laughs> Isn't that true? If people are criticizing you, like, hey, don't get mad. You're worse than that. <laughs> Isn't there freedom there, though, to not have to feel like you have to defend yourself every time you're criticized? But it's just to humbly accept it. Yeah, you need to repent if there is need for repentance, but to just accept it because you're poor in spirit and you mourn over sin and you're, there's no reason for pride. All right, last one here. And really the climax of this first section. Okay, the climax of this first section. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be what? They will be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What does it mean to hunger and thirst? It means to desire, right? Because what am I saying? My whole point of the sermon is you need to recognize that the blessed people are those who desire surpassing righteousness. That's verse six. But I'm telling you that all these are together, okay? What does it mean to hunger? It means to desire something. Don't you realize that whenever you get advertisements on your phone, online, and on TV, and on billboards, why do they advertise? What are they trying to awaken in you? A desire, a hunger. A thirst. I was talking to a church member this week who was saying, like, you know, like I get these advertisements for these sales, and I'm just like, why did I even buy that? I didn't even want it. Like, it just created a hunger, and then I just bought it. That's what marketing does. It's trying to awaken um, maybe sometimes wise, sometimes foolish hungers, and to try to get you to buy their things. So you need to know this. Everyone here, Christian or non-Christian, all of you are hungry for something. All of you are hungry for something. All of you are thirsting for something. Desire is driving your life. The difference in this room is what you're hungering for. Some of you are desiring and thirsting and hungering and starving for righteousness. And that drives you. And some of you are hungering and thirsting and desiring and starving for something else. Your own kingdom. Your own plans. Your own agendas. And that drives you. Only one will be satisfied though, right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be what? Filled. They'll be satisfied. They will be satisfied. Now, what does he mean by hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Okay, this is the thing that got me so stuck in my study that um, basically really changed the way I look at all of Matthew 5 through 7, this, this thought right here. What does Jesus mean by thirsting for righteousness? We might think, well, you're righteous in Christ, right? Justification. We're, we're sinful. We need to be righteous in Christ to be saved. We trust in Christ. He gets our sin. We get his righteousness counted to us. We're saved. Great. We're blessed. Done deal. Hunger and thirst for Christ's righteousness, and you're, you're filled. Uh, that's biblically true. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew. He might, but I don't think so. What do I, here's what I think it is. I think it has to do with the rest of the sermon. This sermon is all about righteousness, Okay, he talks about in the end of this, uh, when you're persecuted for righteousness, later on, your, your righteousness has to surpass, this is why I call it surpassing righteousness, your righteousness has to surpass the Pharisees. Later on in chapter six, verse one, he says, don't practice your righteousness before people. Like, don't show off with your prayers and your giving before people. And then later he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then he defines righteousness in chapter seven in the golden rule. My point is that this whole book, is a, this whole section of Scripture is about righteousness, okay? And in this, Jesus is saying here, you need a hunger and thirst for righteousness. So what is righteousness? Um, look at Isaiah 56, 1 and... Or you, no, for the sake of time, just... You have, Isaiah 56, 1 through 2 is what I think is going on here, okay? Let me read to you Isaiah 56, 1 through 2. 
Here's what it says. This is what the Lord says. Preserve justice and do righteousness. Listen, he's talking about societally. Preserve justice and do righteousness for my salvation is coming soon and my righteousness will be revealed. Happy is the person, blessed is the person who does this. Who does what? Who preserves justice and does righteousness. Because God's righteousness will finally be what? Revealed. So I think what Jesus is talking about here is not merely your righteous standing in Christ. Yes and amen to that, amen to that, and that's connected. He's not just talking about that. He's saying, are you hungry to be righteous in Christ and then from there to see righteousness in your life, righteousness in your family relationships, righteousness in your church relationships, righteousness in your neighborhood relationships, righteousness in your city's relationships, righteousness in your society's relationships, righteousness in this world? Do you hunger and thirst for that? Because if you do, you're blessed. And you will be satisfied. Because Isaiah 56 2 says, because God's salvation is coming. Will there be righteousness in the whole world in the end? Yes or no? Is it coming? Yes or no? It is coming. Happy is the one who hungers for that now. Hungers for it in all spheres of life, including personally. Okay? He hungers for it now. So what is righteousness? Here's how I would define it. It's what is right personally, spiritually. That's what some people emphasize. Other people emphasize socially and universally. But it's both. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Personally, spiritually, socially, universally, according to the standard of God's unswerving word and glory so that he is honored or his name is honored as holy. Hallowed be his name. There's a desire and thirst for righteousness, for God's, or let me use another quote from Jesus, for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's a starving, insatiable hunger to see God's word done everywhere. Amen. That's the blessed person. It's not merely private. It is private, but it's also public, which is why the second half is going to talk about public righteousness. So the point here is what the law truly pointed to. I mean, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, what is it, righteousness here? It's inner righteousness, not just outer righteousness. It's love for your enemy in, in the Sermon on the Mount. It's true, humble spirituality, not showing off to other people. It's true priority of seeking first the kingdom, not earthly things. It's humble correcting, taking the log out of your own eye first, not just correcting other people. True righteousness that you should be hungry for is confident prayer to God, not mere rote words. It's doing unto others as you would have them do unto you, including doing unto God what you would want God to do unto you if you switched roles, which is humble yourself and trust in him, right? And repent from your sins. The golden rule is not only horizontal. The golden rule is vertical. Amen. And so that's what you hunger for. Let me quote D.A. Carson here. Okay, we're coming in close here. Let me quote D.A. Carson. He says, it's better to take righteousness and righteous, this righteousness and simultaneously... So public righteousness and personal righteousness and justice in the broadest sense. These people hunger and thirst not only that they may be righteous, that they may wholly do God's will from their heart, but that justice may be done everywhere. All unrighteousness grieves them and makes them homesick for the new heaven and the new earth, the home of righteousness, satisfied with neither personal righteousness alone nor social justice alone. D.A. Carson said that. Nor social justice alone. They cry for both. In short... They long for the advent of the messianic kingdom. What they taste now whets their appetite for more. 
Ultimately, they will be satisfied without qualification only when the kingdom is consummated. But they're hungry now. They're hungry now. That's what we want. We want to hunger for righteousness in our own lives before God by salvation, and we want to flow everywhere. Francis and I were talking before we went to sleep last night, and we were talking about we had our marriage group, which everyone's invited to. By the way, if you're married and you want to read Gospel Center Marriage and discuss it, we do it here in this room some Saturday nights. I'll send an email to the church for the next one. And we're just saying, like, man, I really regret that I didn't have a group like this when I was married for my first year or second year or third year. I wish I did. I don't have it. And I wish I did because I think our marriage would have been better in those years. But what, what makes us both excited is that even though we didn't get to enjoy that in our early years of our marriage, we are t- we're tasting of kind of that righteousness in our marriage now, and we want to spread it to them while they're still young. It's that there's a hunger in my wife. I was talking about how she confesses sometimes my own sins to the girls. Or, you know, if you're in Francis Accountability, she doesn't only confess her own sins, she'll confess mine too. And I'm okay with that. I, I know not every husband should. And not, not, I'm not saying you should be, by the way. Wives, you need to check with your husbands first. And vice versa. But here's my point. My point is, my wife has a hunger. She has a hunger for other people to get right what we got wrong. And she'll share our embarrassment for their good. And it's an insatiable hunger. You just want to see it everywhere. You want to see it in every marriage. You want to see it in every single person. You want to see it in every family. You want to see it in every neighborhood. You want to see it in every church. You want to see it in the whole society. It's a surpassing righteousness that covers your whole life and your whole existence and the whole universe. And when you hunger and thirst for that, that's the blessed person. That's a transformed life, right? That's a transformed desire. You can't be selfish anymore because it's not just about your own righteousness. It's about everyone enjoying this righteousness. So let me close here by verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for this full-orbed righteousness that's going to be finished in the kingdom. And I encourage you to read the rest of Isaiah 56 because it talks about how that kingdom comes. Or it, it talks about the filling of that kingdom. But you will be filled because Christ will come and he will make you righteous and then he will flow righteousness through you into all of life. So what does this look like personally? Here's what you need to long for. Long for personal righteousness in your life. If you're not a Christian, long for the righteousness that would save you and it's not your own. It's Jesus Christ's righteousness alone. It's repenting from your sins and trusting in Jesus who died for your sins and rose from the dead. If you do that, not your righteousness, not your good works, but Christ's, you will be forgiven of your sins, you will be blessed, and God will consider you and count you righteous. And that's the most glorious of all things. All all Christians everywhere who debate the other stuff, they should all say amen to that, right? Righteousness is in Christ alone, by faith alone, not by works. But when God does that in you, and that's the first, always the first step, he's gonna start to put, he's gonna put his Holy Spirit in you, and he's gonna start to work righteousness into all of your life. And he's going to give you this hunger that you just can't put out. And when he does that, you need to long for not only personal righteousness, but long for neighborhood and community righteousness. Long for abortion to end. Long for ethnocentric oppression to end. Long for marriage and gender confusion to end. Because these are righteousness issues that are damaging even the people who are for it. Long for their good. Long for the gospel to spread all over the world. I have Bible verses here. I'm not even going to read them. Long for the final salvation of this whole world. Long for the final judgment. Even long for judgment and condemnation for those who won't repent. That's what Revelation 6, 9 through 11 says. They're there under the, the altar and they say, how long, O Lord? How long? When will, you ju- when will you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? 
That's longing and hungering for righteousness. It goes both ways. Hungering for salvation for everyone who will be saved and hungering for judgment and condemnation and final full justice and righteousness for those who won't be. Either on the cross for those who are saved or on people in final judgment forever. That's our desire. We don't want to see anyone condemned. God is not willing that any should perish. That's why we're preaching the gospel now. But there will be that day and we long for it. We long for it. Okay. So all of these three things, if you're poor in spirit, if you're mourning, and if you're humble, then you desire surpassing righteousness in your life. I have reasons for that. I'm not going to share it now for the sake of time. I'm going to share it maybe tonight for our evening service. Let me just say this as we close. Brothers and sisters, recognize the truly happy person. Recognize the truly happy person, the truly blessed person, the one who is poor in spirit, the one who mourns regularly, the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, and the one who's humble. Now, have we succeeded in that in our own lives? Yes or no? No. But there's someone who has. Did Jesus become poor? Yeah. Jesus, though he was rich, became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. Second Corinthians 9, 8. He was poor in spirit. Did Jesus mourn? Yeah, his greatest mourning was on the cross when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he forsook Jesus because of our sin. He mourned over sin. He mourned over Jerusalem's hard-heartedness, didn't he? He cried and wept for Jerusalem. Blessed are the humble. Was Jesus humble? Did he not humble himself by becoming a man and becoming a servant and then going to a cross and die for our sins? He humbled himself. And did Jesus hunger and thirst for righteousness? Did Jesus want to see righteousness in everything, in the whole world, in everyone's lives? Did he not hunger for it? Aren't you glad Jesus was hungry for righteousness? What if Jesus wasn't hungry for it? What if he didn't care? Then we'd be lost. We'd be damned and stuck in our sin. But Jesus was hungrier than anyone for righteousness. He was thirstier than anyone for righteousness. That he came to give his life to make us righteous. Praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. So brothers and sisters, recognize the blessing we have in Christ through our poverty, through our mourning, through our humility, and through our hungering for righteousness. And in that, let us rejoice in the blessing we have in God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you'd help us to enjoy the blessing we have. We know this blessing is not ultimately dependent on us. It's dependent on your grace and mercy. So break our spirits of pride. Break our spirits of self-sufficiency. Break our spirits of busyness that crowds out grieving and mourning. Break our sinful, smug satisfaction that does not hunger and thirst for personal, familial, communal, ecclesial, societal, and universal righteousness. Forgive us for being satisfied too quickly. Lord Jesus, we love you. Thank you for your humility. Thank you for your poverty. Thank you for your mourning. And thank you for your hunger for righteousness. We worship you. We honor you. We want you. In Jesus' name, amen.